Hi, this is Stan Bush. Hi, this is Stephanie Calvert. This is John Payne. This is Jack Hughes. Hey everyone, this is Britt Lightning from Vixen. Hey everybody, this is Prescott Niles. Hi, I'm Carrie Stevens. Hello, I'm Kofi Baker. Listening to Play That Rock and Roll. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Joe Kay, and today we are headed back down to Gator Country to talk about one of the greatest Southern rock bands of all time. I'm talking about Molly Hatchet. In our last episode, we talked about Molly Hatchet's origins, how they were founded by guitarist Dave Lubeck and were fronted by the iconic vocalist Danny Joe Brown. They scored a big hit in 1979 with Flirtin' with Disaster, and that's the track they're most famous for. But today, we're going to be talking about a less discussed part of Molly Hatchet's history, and that is the later era of the band. Last time we talked about their classic era, which wrapped up at the end of the 80s. So today we are going to be talking about how the band continued onward with and without many of their original members. And we're also going to talk about how the band exists today, which is without any of their original members. And I'll talk about why that is. But first, I'd like to mention that, like last time, I'm going to be dropping in clips of my conversation with former Kerrang! writer Xavier Russell. Xavier visited the show late last year to talk about his time working as a rock journalist at Kerrang! back in the 80s and 90s. He did a ton of coverage on Molly Hatchet in the early 80s. So he came on my podcast to talk about his time working at Kerrang!, but also to talk about Molly Hatchet. We used clips of our Molly Hatchet conversation in the last episode, and I have some more clips from that conversation to use today, because Xavier was with the band recently and got a preview of some of the new music that they have coming in 2024, so I'm going to share that a little bit later. I'd like to thank Xavier again for coming on the show. It was an absolute blast speaking with him. And I'd also like to encourage you to check out the full Molly Hatchet conversation that I had with Xavier. That full video is up on our YouTube channel, and that's where I'll be pulling selected clips from for this episode. Also, while you're at it, you should check out the podcast interview I did with Xavier late last year, which was all about his time in Kerrang. There's no Molly Hatchet stuff in that episode, but it's still a very fun conversation because Xavier has some great stories about his time working at Kerrang. But with that, let's pick up where we left off last time. So, as I said, Molly Hatchet was founded in the early 70s by guitarist Dave Lubeck. Danny Joe Brown was eventually selected to be the lead vocalist. And as far as I'm concerned, Danny Joe is really the key to Molly Hatchet's early success. He has a great vocal style, very gravelly, and they just recorded some great songs, including, of course, their big hit, 1979's Flirtin' with Disaster. 
Unfortunately, in the aftermath of the success of that song, Danny Joe Brown stepped away from the band to pursue a solo career. They tried to continue on without him. They made some interesting records, but it really didn't punch through commercially, and Danny Joe's solo career stalled as well, so they reunited in the early 80s, and they tried to pick up where they left off, and they enjoyed some, I would say, middling success through the 1980s. Unfortunately, as the 80s wound down, so did their commercial success. In 1989, they released an album called Lightning Strikes Twice, and that album did not chart at all, which in turn got them dropped from their label. So in 1990, during a concert in Toledo, they announced that the band was breaking up. At that point, lead singer Danny Joe Brown and new guitarist Bobby Ingram, who had replaced founding member Dave Lubeck a couple of years earlier, those two guys wanted to continue, but at this point, the band would need a new lineup, and also a new label. So the band would go through several lineup changes in the early 90s, and they would exist strictly as a touring act because they didn't have a label. Unfortunately, Danny Joe Brown had a lot of health issues that posed serious challenges to the band at this time. There were several shows he was simply not able to perform at, so they would have to rely on stand-ins to get through those shows. One of those stand-ins was a familiar name from last episode, Jimmy Farrar. Yes, Jimmy Farrar was actually brought back into the Molly Hatchet fold in the early 90s to fill in for Danny Joe from time to time. Unfortunately, fan reception to Jimmy Farrar was even worse in the early 90s than it was in the early 80s. So the band ultimately did not see him as a long-term solution if Danny Joe Brown was going to be sidelined. Another singer that would stand in for Danny Joe was a guy named Phil McCormick, who became good friends with the guys in the band, and after Danny Joe Brown suffered a stroke in 1995, Phil would be the guy that the band would select to move forward with, with Danny Joe's full blessings. In 1999, Danny Joe Brown said to Swampland.com, Phil is a good guy. I suggested Phil, and I endorse Phil. Now, I bring this up because it's important to know that the lineup of Molly Hatchet that is often derided by old school fans was a lineup that was largely approved of and encouraged by several of these original members, including Danny Joe Brown. With Phil McCormick as the new lead singer, the band finally got a record deal. They signed with a German label, SPV Recordings, who they are still with today. Now, this new lineup that would feature guitarist Bobby Ingram and vocalist Phil McCormick would also include keyboardist John Galvin. John had originally joined the band in 1983, and he's actually still with the band today. So those three guys would be the core of the group starting in the 90s going forward. They released their first album on this new record deal in June 1996, and that album is called Devil's Canyon. During the recording sessions of this album, Danny Joe Brown attempted to return, but ultimately he would have to retire as his health struggles were just too much to overcome. Phil McCormick would handle all lead vocals. Now, this album is definitely heavier than the albums the band was producing in the 80s, and that is a trend that would continue on to this day. There's a couple of tracks here worth checking out, too. Rolling Thunder is a track that is a tribute to the Vietnam War vets, which is a very patriotic number, but 
Then there's also another track on here called Heartless Land, which is an extremely cynical look at American society. (laughs) It is a political song, but I would not say there's any partisan message in it. So that's an interesting one to check out. Now, the title track on this album, I will absolutely go to bat for, because I believe this is probably the best song of the Phil McCormick era as a whole and one of the best songs from Molly Hatchett's entire discography. I believe this holds up with the stuff they produced it in their heyday. Take a listen. Here's the title track, Devil's Canyon. Well, it's time to fight. It just don't matter who's wrong or right. get a man in your sights. As I said, a louder and heavier album than previous work. Ultimately, I think this is an interesting project and a clear indication of the new direction of the band. Now, as the 90s wound down, Bobby Ingram moved into the position of band leader as he purchased the rights to the band Molly Hatchet from original member Dwayne Rowland for $250,000 in 2000. Now, this right here, this Transaction 2000, is the real dividing line for most old-school fans and current fans of Molly Hatchet. The old-school fans who loved Dave Lubick and Danny Joe Brown and that group of late 70s Southern rockers, there is a faction of them that really dislike Bobby Ingram and what the band continued on as. I'm not in that group, to be clear, but we are going to talk about why that is in a little bit. But keeping to the chronology here, I want to bring up a quote that I found from that same 1999 interview that Danny Joe Brown did with Swampland.com. He said this of Bobby Ingram, quote, Bobby was the best guitar player I ever worked with. I felt he was the best, and I still do to this day. So again... From Danny Joe Brown, a full-throated endorsement of Phil McCormick, and a very strong compliment to Bobby Ingram. Now, in that same interview, this might be where some of the trouble around who owns the band started, because Danny Joe Brown also said this, quote, As far as the band being called Molly Hatchet, Bobby doesn't have any right to that name at all. The only right Bobby has to the name Molly Hatchet is the right I gave him. That's all he's got. I think you should call it the Bobby Ingram Band. Damn sure ain't Molly Hatchet, and you can underline damn. So there seems to have been a falling out at some point. I can't quite pinpoint where or exactly why, but Danny Joe Brown also said this, quote, Bobby Ingram didn't start Molly Hatchet, so he can't be Molly Hatchet. He was brought in by me, and that's all Bobby ever will be. I hate that, but that's the truth. You know, since I've left the group, Bobby has never sent me a get well card or anything, not a phone call or anything, to say he hoped I would get better. Nothing. He just sent me a paper that said he was taking the name and stuff. So I think this quote right here is what old school fans point to for why they resent Bobby. Now, Bobby actually did respond to these remarks on Swampland.com by saying that he absolutely kept in touch with Danny and that it was Danny that stopped communicating with him. Now, I can't litigate this stuff. This is all, you know, 25 years ago. So it's a lot of he said, he said. And my best read of it is that there are two sides to every story. 
And in this case, I imagine there is some degree of truth to both sides. Obviously, there was a falling out and there was some sort of disagreement over the name, but Bobby acquired the name Molly Hatchet legally, and Danny Joe gave him a hell of a compliment on his guitar playing. And I think that's worth bringing up because that's why he was brought into the band in the first place, because he is a seriously underrated guitar player. Now, around this same time, in June 1998, Molly Hatchet released an album called Silent Reign of Heroes, and this marks the point where the band enters what I like to call the metal years of Molly Hatchet. <laughs> I'm not going to say they move away from Southern rock, but I feel that the phrase Southern metal might be more appropriate because this is really heavy music. So if you like metal, I wouldn't even point you to the original Molly Hatchet albums. If you like metal, I would point you to the stuff they were doing in the 90s and 2000s. There's a song on this album called World of Trouble, which includes the lyrics... When mass destructions at the hands of Saddam Hussein. When mass destructions at the hands of Saddam Hussein. <laughs> Just kind of wild. That was recorded in 1998 and not 2002 when we were gearing up for a war with Iraq. I don't know. Head of the curve? Interesting. Other lyrics in the song reference the Oklahoma City bombing, so that's a little more timely. The title track, Silent Reign of Heroes, is an ode to Civil War soldiers, and I'm going to let you just guess which side that they were honoring with that song, but here, let's take a listen to that. Making my way across Dixie, 1865, I walked all day and halfway to heaven, I believe I'm on the other side. I would say that's it for the politics on this album. The rest of the album is not political at all. The rest of it's pretty good. In fact, there's a very nice acoustic version of Fall of the Peacemakers here. Phil's vocals are quite good on that, and that's a song that lends itself well to acoustic performance. A couple years after that, a southern rock supergroup of sorts got together and called themselves the Dixie Jam Band for a one-night-only event called Jammin' for Danny Joe Brown in 2000 and released a live album of that concert. This was a benefit album for Danny Joe Brown. As I mentioned, he had a number of health problems that plagued him his entire life. In fact, when he originally left Molly Hatchet back in the early 80s, the supposed reason the band gave to the press was that he was facing health issues and needed time away from the band to recover. There was some truth to that. That was also covering for some other reasons. But the sad reality of Danny Joe Brown's life is that he struggled with health challenges the whole way through. And as he got into his 50s, these challenges were starting to get to be too much for him. So this super group, which included a couple of Molly Hatchet original players, got together to raise some money for him and put together a pretty good live album. And Danny Joe Brown even got to come out on stage at the end of the show to sing Flirtin' with Disaster. Now, this was just after he got out of the hospital. You can watch the video on YouTube. He has to sit while he sings, but he still gives it his all. It's still a really good performance. And it's sad that this was the last time he performed live on stage, but... It's a hell of a good note to go out on. So I'm going to play a quick clip of Danny Joe Brown's final performance of Flirting with Disaster. This is from the Jammin' for Danny Joe Brown live album from 2000. Take a listen. I'm the 
Molly Hatchet released their 10th album in June 2001, which was called Kingdom of Twelve. Twelve in Roman numerals. Not exactly sure why, but I dig it. There's a track on here called Heart of the USA, which is another tribute to Vietnam War veterans. And it also features the lyrics, Give me them stars and bars for heritage, not hate. Give me them stars and bars for heritage, not hate. Oh boy. So we're going to talk about the Confederate flag stuff in a little bit. Put a pin in that for now. Some other interesting tracks in this album include a cover of the Rolling Stones' Tumbling Dice. This is like the third Rolling Stones cover track that this band has done. I mean, obviously, the Rolling Stones have influenced almost every band in the classic rock genre, but they are clearly a favorite of the guys in Molly Hatchet. And yes, this version of Tumbling Dice is quite heavy. It's like like a metal version of the song, which isn't a bad thing. It's an interesting take. The album also includes an acoustic cover of Danny Joe Brown's Edge of Sundown. That's from Danny Joe Brown's solo album, which was the first album in the Molly Hatchet world that Bobby Ingram appeared on. So if you don't remember from the last episode, Bobby Ingram was brought into Molly Hatchet by Danny Joe Brown because he was a guitar player that Danny Joe knew all the way back in the 70s and was the guy that Danny Joe picked to play on his solo album and be in the Danny Joe Brown band. And if you watch the music video for Edge of Sundown on YouTube, Bobby is shredding out of his mind and jumping all over the stage, extremely energetic. It's a cool performance. So it's not inappropriate that they're doing an acoustic version of this song now because Bobby was a part of that song's original creation. So I would say as a whole, this album is pretty good if you're a fan of, again, that really heavy rock, almost metal kind of stuff. But as far as their whole catalog, even the later stuff that I'm talking about here, I would say this one is not particularly essential. Moving forward a few years, on March 10th, 2005, Danny Joe Brown passes away at age 53. As I was saying earlier, he just had too many long-standing health issues. It all finally caught up to him. It was kidney failure, complications from diabetes, hepatitis C. It was just all too much. So, unfortunately, he died quite young. So, in tribute to the memory of Danny Joe Brown, someone I consider to be one of the greatest Southern rock vocalists of all time, I'm going to play a clip of a song from Molly Hatchett's debut album, This is called Trust Your Old Friend. That song was called Trust Your Old Friend. That's from Molly Hatchett's debut record. But I think right now is a good time to take a quick break. So after these ads, we'll be back with a segment that looks at a couple of recent news stories in the world of classic rock. So please stay tuned. We will be right back with a segment I call Yesterday's News.
Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Not quite yesterday, but recent enough. We are now in a segment called Yesterday's News that takes a look at some recent headlines in the world of classic rock. Let's talk about these stories here in my classic rock newspaper, and then we'll get back to the hatchet stuff. All right. Elvis Presley Avatar show coming in 2024, later this year. So hot on the heels of the Kiss New Era Avatar announcement, there is apparently now... Also going to be an Elvis avatar show called Elvis Evolution. The difference between these two shows is that KISS is waiting all the way until 2027 to give some time for the tech to be further developed and for the show to be made to their specific liking. I actually like that approach. I think some time with KISS out of the touring circuit is a good thing. How can we miss you if you don't go away? So it's good that Kiss will be off the road and that there will be some distance between their retirement as a touring entity and this new Avatar show. The Elvis Avatar show is coming 
this November. And the company website states, quote, a life-sized digital Elvis will share his most iconic songs and moves. Through AI and groundbreaking tech, you'll be able to witness iconic Elvis performances as if you were really there and celebrate defining moments in Elvis Presley's extraordinary life and career. Oh, cool. AI. Okay, I'm sorry. I can't get excited about this. <laughs> I mean, the mere mention of AI immediately turns me off to, like, not just this show, but the idea of hologram concerts as a whole. My problem with the Whitney Houston hologram show I saw in Las Vegas a couple of years ago was that I could tell that it was a deep fake and not pulled from actual recordings of her. That shit is unsettling. It's uncanny valley. I can't get into that. So, again, I think KISS could potentially figure out a way to make this work because those guys are, importantly, alive still and active in designing that show. This Elvis show strikes me as, well, basically just another example of, like, every Elvis entity of the past 40-plus years. Just cringe-inducing exploitation. So... I'm not very hopeful for this one. I probably will skip it. All right, let's move on to the next story. New Broadway musicals based on Huey Lewis and Prince's Purple Rain are in the works. Now, this is interesting. There is a Broadway show called The Heart of Rock and Roll, which is scheduled to arrive this April. That's based on the music of Huey Lewis. And it was just announced, like yesterday, that there's going to be a Broadway show based on the Prince movie Purple Rain, as that is currently being adapted into a stage play, but they haven't said when that's coming out. I'm bringing both of these up because I'm starting to think that musicals based on classic rock artists might be something worthwhile to consider if you want to hear music from artists that don't tour anymore in a concert experience. I'm kind of surprised at myself for saying this because I've never been like a musical guy. But last year, I saw the Tina Turner musical in Chicago, and it was incredible. Probably the best show I've ever seen in a theater that wasn't just a straight concert. In fact, I'm going to absolutely see it again when it plays my hometown of Milwaukee in April. Huey Lewis doesn't tour anymore. Prince has been gone for several years. So if you want to see their music played on stage, I think it's worth considering checking out these musicals when they start going on the road. Because if they're as good as the Tina Turner musical, then you're in for a fun night. And I think it's probably the best way to see those songs performed on stage since the artists aren't touring anymore. All right, that's enough news for now. Let's get back to the main story. I'm way down. I'm so down. I'm reading yesterday's news. Molly Hatch had released their 11th album called Warriors of the Rainbow Bridge in May 2005. This album marks the return of founding member Dave Lubeck. So how cool is that? The guy who started it all cleaned himself up got his life together, and is welcomed back into the fold. If you remember in the last episode, he stepped away from the band in the late 80s due to drug addiction. That just got out of control. And he took some time to put himself back together, and the band welcomed him back into the fold. Dave Lubeck is as important to Molly Hatchett's story as anybody, so having him back in the band now, I think, lends credibility to this later era of the band. 
That said, all of the songs in this album were written by Bobby Ingram and Phil McCormick, so Dave was brought in as a player. And he stayed with them for several years. There's a track on this album called Moonlight Dancing on the Bayou that I think is really good. And I would say this album as a whole is an improvement over the last couple. It's still very heavy, but a little more melodic, a little more conventional. And I think that's probably at least partially because of the return of Dave Lubeck. The closing track on this album is called Rainbow Bridge. And it was written as a tribute to Bobby Ingram's wife, Stephanie, who had passed away unexpectedly in 2004. So I'm going to play a clip of that. We all have family hardships, do our best just to survive. early springtime morning, the life I knew came to an end. I lost my lover and my wife and my very closest friend. 2006, Bobby spoke to the website davesontour.com and said this about the album. Quote, We're very proud of this record. The musical direction is heavy with a hard edge and very emotional. We write from our own experiences, and this record came about naturally, considering the circumstances since my wife Stephanie passed away halfway through the production of this record. She had heard the music of the song Rainbow Bridge, and that was her favorite. In her memory, that song tells the life story of me and Stephanie. In other interviews, he referred to her as the seventh member of Molly Hatchet because of all of the behind-the-scenes work that she did on behalf of the band. And I will say, the intro of this song sounds a little bit like Fall of the Peacemakers, which I think is very appropriate, and I think it's a very sweet tribute. A couple years later, the band released their 12th album called Southern Rock Masters in April 2008. This is a covers record of classic Southern rock tracks. Now, I would say that the track selection is quite good. There's a lot of good songs here. Unfortunately, I don't know if Phil McCormick's vocals are always up to the task. There's a couple of songs where it sounds like he's a little in over his head, particularly on The Boys Are Back in Town. Also, I'm not crazy about the album cover for this one. It looks a little like something just doodled in a high schooler's notebook. (laughs) So I'm not crazy about the album cover, but I would say that's an outlier. I like most of the album covers from this era, but this one, not so much. Charlie Daniels is featured on their cover of Freebird, which is pretty cool. Now the title, Southern Rock Masters, it might be a little questionable. They definitely cover some absolute icons of Southern Rock. ZZ Top, Allman Brothers, Mountain, Leonard Skinner, Charlie Daniels. Those are all as you say, Southern Rock Masters. But is Thin Lizzy? Are the Eagles Southern Rock? George Thurgood, Rolling Stones? That's a little bit of a stretch. I would describe those groups as more classic rock, mainstream rock, but I guess I'm splitting hairs at this point. Not the most important. If you like covers records and you want to hear some Molly Hatchet versions of classic tunes, definitely worth a listen. In June 2010, they released their 13th album, which was called Justice. And I gotta shout out their album cover for this one. The artwork was designed by Paul R. Gregory, who did most of the artwork for the band starting in 1996 with Devil's Canyon. This one, Justice, is one of my favorites of his. 
This album was inspired and dedicated to a little girl named Summer Thompson who had been kidnapped and murdered at age seven near Jacksonville in October 2009. The connection here is that Molly Hatchett was asked to play a benefit concert for the family, which turned out to be a very emotional experience for Bobby Ingram. Remember, Bobby's wife had passed away just a few years earlier, and he was still quite heartbroken. So he has said that meeting with the Thompson family gave him some purpose and really helped him to heal. He channeled his emotions about this story into a lot of the songs in this record, particularly a track called Fly on the Wings of Angels, Summer's Song. That track opens with a young girl singing You Are My Sunshine, and then it transitions into a sweet tribute song to her memory. I think it's done very well. I'm not criticizing the use of a girl singing You Are My Sunshine, but I will say that is something I never expected to hear from Molly Hatchett, so you really can't call them predictable. Now, the title track, Justice, I think was also inspired by the incident, but that one doesn't channel tragedy. That one channels some anger about what happened to her, so I'm going to play a clip of that. Here is the title track called Justice. Bobby has said that he considers this record to be a concept album of sorts. He wanted this record to have a message, and learning about this horrible tragedy gave him some purpose, gave him inspiration to do some real songwriting. I think the end result is one of the best records of his tenure with the band. Unfortunately, that would be the last album of original material until... Basically now. <laughs> we have a new album coming soon, which I'll talk about briefly, but Molly Hatchett took some time off from songwriting and worked on other projects. The next album that they released, called Regrinding the Axes, hit stores in June 2012, and this was another Southern Rock covers album. In fact, it's basically a reissue of Southern Rock Masters with some of those tracks from that album moved around or replaced. I'll be honest, I'm not really sure what the point of this album is. And that's not all. There was another repackaging of these recordings called Jukebox Saloon, which was released in 2020. Needless to say, I think both of these albums are pretty skippable. Okay, so I've been putting this off, but before our last break, let's talk for a moment about the band's usage of the Confederate flag. Oh boy, I can hear you booing already. <laughs> so, I don't believe they still fly it during concerts today, but one of the hallmarks of this band is that the Confederate battle flag would be displayed regularly during shows as recently as 2013. You can find all kinds of pictures of all of the guys in the band at some point or another being draped with the Confederate flag. The addition of Kerrang! with Xavier Russell's Molly Hatchet cover story. The cover on that magazine are Viking warriors hoisting up a Confederate flag. It was a big part of their identity. But, as I'm sure you're aware, there is a large number of people who do not appreciate that aspect of them. I did find... Some comments from the band. In July 2005, Bobby said this to RockTimes.com in regards to the Confederate flag. Quote, It's part of our tradition from where we come from. 
Jacksonville, Florida is deep south. It's a part of the band. The Rebel Flag, beer drinking on a Friday or Saturday night, pickup trucks, barbecue, we stand behind it. And then moving forward a couple of years, Bobby was asked about it again on a podcast called White Line Fever in December 2012. So I'm going to play a clip of his comments here. Yeah, we've had, you know, uh, you know, different events that we play where they ask us not to bring the Confederate flag out, you know, and we, we like to honor that, you know, but I mean, we still stand behind our heritage, you know, I'm from mm-hmm. the South, you know, that's the stars and bars, you know, mm. um, you know, I, I don't look at it as being racist mm. at all. I look at it as heritage, not mm. hate, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there are a lot of Southerners that died in the Civil War, mm-hmm. you know, and why should we forget about them? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's part of our demographic where we're at. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's heritage. It's not hate, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, we don't mean anything bad by it if we bring the Confederate flag out, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's just part of, you know, what we're all about. And we bring the American flag out, you know, and that's, that's heritage, you mm-hmm. know, so... You know, I mean, people can make a big deal out of, you know, not that big a deal, mm-hmm. you know. It mm-hmm. doesn't need to be that big a deal, yeah. you know. It's just, it's, it's, you know, it's heritage. Now, I got to say, that is not the most enthusiastic defense of the flag I've ever heard. In fact, that's <laughs> a pretty reluctant explanation. That sounds like a guy who'd rather be talking about anything else. And I think it's because he had been hearing about it for some time at that point. And that was back in 2012. So we've heard Bobby's perspective on this. I don't think it's my place to argue the other side of it. So I will defer to some comments from some other Southern rock artists, some of Bobby's contemporaries, and we'll hear their perspectives on the Confederate flag. And maybe it would mean more coming from them. So Leonard Skinnerd also waved the Confederate flag during concerts. But in September 2012, Gary Rossington from Leonard Skinnerd told CNN that the band will stop using it as a stage decoration, saying, quote, Through the years, people like the KKK and skinheads kind of kidnapped the Dixie or Southern flag from its tradition and the heritage of the soldiers. That's what it was about. We didn't want that to go to our fans or show the image like we agreed with any of the race stuff or any of the bad things. In 2015, Tom Petty said to Rolling Stone about the flag, quote, The Confederate flag was the wallpaper of the South when I was a kid growing up in Gainesville, Florida. I always knew it had to do with the Civil War. I was pretty ignorant of what it actually meant. In 1985, I released an album called Southern Accents. The Confederate flag became a part of the marketing of that tour. I wish I had given it more thought. It was a downright stupid thing to do. In July 2015, Greg Allman from the Allman Brothers said this to Radio.com, quote, I was taught how to play music by these very, very kind older black men. My best friend in the world is a black man. If people are going to look at that flag and think of it as representing slavery, then I say burn every one of them. That same month... His bandmate, Warren Haynes, from the Allman Brothers and also Government Mule, told Radio.com, quote, When I look back and think that there were a lot of bands flying the flag in the old days, I guess we were much more naive at that point and didn't realize how it is interpreted by the people who are offended. And that's really what it's all about. I'm a Southerner. 
I can't tell you how long I've thought it was offensive. You don't need a symbol to be proud of who you are. And finally, Patterson Hood from the Drive-By Truckers wrote an editorial to the New York Times about the flag, stating, quote, If we want to truly honor our Southern forefathers, we should do it by moving on from the symbols and prejudices of their time and building the diversity, the art, and literary traditions we've inherited from them. It's time to study and learn about who we are and where we came from while finding a way forward without the baggage of our ancestors' fears and superstitions. It's time to quit rallying around a flag that divides. Now, I have to say, almost all of these comments came after the interview with Bobby that I just played earlier. So I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt that he has considered these perspectives and maybe his views have changed. As I said, I don't believe the band flies the Confederate flag during shows anymore. So hopefully they've moved on from that permanently. All right, this is getting a little heavy uh, for this show, so let's take a quick break. Let's go to a segment that looks back at the biggest events in the past 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years of classic rock. This is a segment that I call Back in Time. So Huey Lewis, please take us back in time. Is this a 50s? ago, January 21st, 1984, Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes hits number one on the Billboard charts. This song is awesome, (laughs) and it is one of the all-time great examples of a band having their biggest hit be a song that sounds almost nothing like anything else in their catalog. But that's not a bad thing. This is a kick-ass song. January 10th, 1964, Introducing the Beatles is the first Beatles album to be released in the United States. This was released by Chicago's VJ Records, which preceded Capitol Records' more famous album, Meet the Beatles, which would arrive on January 20th. The Beatles would then score their first number one hit with I Want to Hold Your Hand on January 25th. I bring this up just to mark that we are now 60 years past the earliest moments of Beatlemania. Just think about that. 60 years from when that got started. Moving forward a couple of decades, January 16th, 1984, Paul and Linda McCartney arrested for possession of marijuana. Paul and Linda were on holiday in Barbados. Their villa was raided by local police and some marijuana was found. Under half an ounce, to be specific. They pleaded guilty which happened four years to the day after McCartney had been arrested in Tokyo for traveling to Japan with half a pound of weed. And I covered that story in an earlier podcast. So to mark this story, here is a clip of Paul calling for the decriminalization of marijuana while speaking to the press. Can we get one thing straight? That whatever you think and whatever you think I've done, this, I'm telling you, this substance, cannabis is a whole lot less harmful than rum punch, whiskey, nicotine, and glue, all of which are perfectly legal. I would like to see it decriminalized, because I don't think in the privacy of my own room 
I was doing anyone any harm whatsoever. Yeah, for the record, he was right and way ahead of his time on this. You know, it is crazy to me that weed is still illegal in several states, including where I live. All right, moving forward another couple of decades. January 5th, 2004, Ray Davies of the Kinks shot in the leg during a mugging. So the story here is that Ray had dinner with a friend in New Orleans, and after they'd finished eating, he'd offered to walk her home. While they're walking home, they are confronted by a mugger. Ray's friend throws her purse down the street, hoping that the mugger would go after that so they could escape, and he did. But instead of walking the other way, Ray chases after him. In his 2013 autobiography, Americana, he writes, quote, I realize that we all have a button that can be pushed when years of anger are channeled into one moment. I'd hit that moment. My breaking point. I ran after the guy. I wanted to catch him and beat the shit out of him. At that point, his accomplice's car had pulled up and he ran across to get in. I foolishly kept running after him, but when I was within 10 or 15 yards of the car, the mugger stopped by the passenger door, took up the classic two-handed shooting position, took aim, and fired his gun. Just as I saw the bright-colored light come out of that gun, I dived to my left, away from the direction of the bullet. I fell to my left and felt a heavy thump as the bullet hit me. It was as though the whole right side of my body had suddenly gone dead. Good lord, he is lucky to be alive. (laughs) Now this case was eventually dropped, partially because Ray was not able to attend the court date, and partially because the police were not happy with him over this. Police Chief Eddie Compass said, quote, I'm sorry for what happened, but Mr. Davies showed poor judgment in running after the individuals. Yeah, to say the least, Ray, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, clearly he acknowledges that there was a lot going on with him emotionally beyond this whole incident, so he broke at the wrong moment, I guess. Just a little bit of trivia, I actually went to the scene of this crime when I visited New Orleans back in 2018. It's probably the strangest classic rock location that I ever went sightseeing at. (laughs) It's not very remarkable, it's just an intersection. But for what it's worth, it actually didn't seem like all that bad of a neighborhood. I'm not exactly sure why I felt the need to go over and check out the site, but hey, that was part of the trip. So, given this story, what would be the tackiest way for me to play us out of this segment? Oh, I know. Father Christmas. A gang of kids came over and bugged me And knocked my reindeer to the floor They said, Father Christmas, give us some money Don't mess around with those silly toys We'll beat you up, don't hand it over We want your bread, so don't make us annoyed Back to the main story here. Let's ramp this up. So, Molly Hatchett tours regularly through the 2010s, but this life on the road really takes its toll on singer Phil McCormick. As the decade wore on, he had a very noticeable weight gain, and health problems started to catch up with him. And fan reactions to seeing him on stage started to become more negative. So eventually, a new singer named Jimmy Elkins would take over on vocals. In 2019, Bobby Ingram said this to Music Life magazine, quote, 
Phil was a cornerstone for this band all the way through this past spring. In the meantime, we had done shows around Florida, and we had noticed a group called Bounty Hunter that was playing a lot of the same places we were, and Jimmy Elkins was their lead singer. We would see them around different places, and once in a while I would get up with them and jam, and we became friends. So he just seemed like the logical choice to bring in when we lost Phil. Jimmy was really the only guy on our radar. We didn't even bother looking at anybody else. So I might have buried the lead there. I think this is a good time to take a moment for the in memoriam section of this episode, which sadly is quite lengthy. The original lineup and several of the people I've mentioned so far have passed away. So I'd like to go through their names before we wrap up here. As I mentioned earlier, original vocalist Danny Joe Brown died in March 2005 at age 53. Original guitarist Dwayne Rowland died in his home in St. Augustine, Florida on June 19, 2006, of natural causes, also at age 53. Bass player Riff West died on November 19, 2014 at age 64 after a lengthy illness, which was caused by severe injuries suffered in a car accident. Original drummer Bruce Crump died on March 16, 2015, at age 57, from complications of a 12-year battle with throat cancer. Original bass player Banner Thomas died on April 10, 2017, at age 62, from complications of pneumonia and rheumatoid arthritis. Band founder and guitarist Dave Lubeck died on September 2, 2017, at age 66, of a heart attack. Vocalist Jimmy Farrar, who was the front man from 1980 to 1982, died of heart failure on October 29th, 2018, at age 67. And vocalist Phil McCormick died after an illness on April 26th, 2019, at age 58. Finally, original guitarist Steve Holland died on August 2nd, 2020, of pneumonia as a complication of COVID-19 at age 66. That is the entire original lineup, plus some members from the heyday, plus both lead singers that took over from Danny Joe Brown. They are all gone, but their legacy and their music will live on. So in tribute to all of these men, here's a song from 2000's Kingdom of Twelve, which have some lyrics that I feel are appropriate. The song is called One Last Ride. <laughs> that would feature vocalist Jimmy Elkin prominently is Battleground, which is a live record released in 2019. It is a triple live album, which features some very cool artwork by Paul Raymond Gregory, another one of my favorites of his. Again, he's the one who's done almost all of the band's artwork since Devil's Canyon. It's a pretty good live album. Features a couple of songs from the Bobby Ingram years, which are, I would say, underrepresented in compilations and live records when it comes to this discography. A couple years later, the band's cover of Layla was included on a 2022 CD called A Tribute to Eric Clapton, Jimmy Elkin on vocals. I would say the cover isn't bad, but it's not essential. 
if you're looking for a southern rock cover of Layla, I would actually point you to Charlie Daniels. He has a much more interesting cover of this song on one of his albums, which is called Renegade. You should check that out. J.B. Elkins would actually leave the band in 2023. I am not sure why. Wikipedia mentions something about a bike accident, but there's no source on that, and I could not find anything when I searched for information about Jimmy Elkins having a bike accident. So I don't know if that's the reason or not. It's not totally clear. But whatever the case, they have a new lead singer. A guy named Parker Lee takes over vocals in mid-2023, and Parker is uh, a young man. He's in his 20s, and he posts a lot on social media about his admiration for Danny Joe Brown and other Southern Rock legends, so he's very enthusiastic about the gig. He released his own debut solo album on December 31st, 2023, so it's just out, and that album is full of his own original Southern Rock music and, and one cover track. I gave that a listen, and I gotta say, it shows off his songwriting and vocal chops. It's pretty impressive for a kid his age. And it's a really good teaser for the new Molly Hatchet album that's coming in 2024. A single from that album called Firing Line has been released, and let's take a listen to that here. Again, that's Parker Lee on lead vocals, and I think it's quite good. Obviously, he's not as gravelly and growly as Danny Joe Brown, but that's okay. Molly Hatchet chased Danny's vocal style, I think at least, for most of this later era, but the problem with that is you really can't replicate someone like that. Generally speaking, I think it's better to find someone with their own talent and style. Bobby Ingram has said about this track, quote, Throughout history, humanity has fought to stand up for what is right and defend the wrongfully accused. Firing Line depicts standing up for yourself on that fine line between the truth and being falsely accused by the system, and by doing so, standing up for yourself to protect your integrity and fight for what is right. Okay, works for me. I'm just happy that they're going to be back with a new album. It's been almost 15 years since their last album of original material, which has been the longest stretch between albums for the band in their whole discography. So I'm really excited to hear what the new lead singer has to bring to this album, and I'm really interested to hear what this record is going to sound like. Again, I listened to Parker's solo album. He's got a great vocal, and I think that is going to lend itself really well to the band, and this new single, Firing Line, is very promising. So excited to hear what that's going to be. Talking about that new album, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, my guest, Xavier Russell, had visited with the band a few months back to hear some of the tracks from that album, and he told me about that when we had our Miley Hatchet conversation. So here's a clip of Xavier talking about what he heard from this new upcoming album from Miley Hatchet. The two songs they played were Firing Line, which was a pretty pretty good straight-ahead rocker, you know, the usual guitar solos and had a bit of piano in it. But the second song was the killer song called Coming Home, which was like a new version of Boogie No More. 
It had a sort of moody opening, a bit like Fall of the Peacemakers. And then it slowly build and build and build. And then the guitars come in and the guitars come in. Then the chicken scratch builds and you get the piano bit again. And it was about seven or eight minutes long, this version. Okay. Having heard those two new songs, to me, it sounds like they do sound fresh and new. But at the same time, it's like, let's give them what they really want. You know, let's almost go back to the Boogie No Moors and all that. And it's really well written. That, that Coming Home song, when, the minute you hear it, you'll love it. And they recorded both those songs in about two or three days at Abbey Road. And then they went straight on the road again. But SP, I think they went to SPV, which is their current label, yep. and said, look, we want to do a little mini tour of Europe. Well, we also want to go to the Abbey Road. And SPV said, off you go. <laughs> and then three days later, they played live at the 100 Club in London, which is right on Oxford Street, yep. which is a legendary venue where The Who have played. And I saw Metallica there do a secret show. And it's one of those venues that's quite iconic and the stage isn't that high up and it's very atmospheric. And they came on, they were brilliant. Yeah, that sounds great. I cannot wait to hear it. So as we're wrapping up here, I only have one experience seeing Molly Hatchett live in concert. They performed at the old Northern Lights Theater at Potawatomi Casino here in Milwaukee in 2019. That was the last concert I ever saw at that venue, as it has since been converted into a sports book, which is a real shame because that was the best music venue in Milwaukee for my money, at least. My takeaway from that show is that Bobby Ingram can fucking shred. Seriously, that guy is a good guitar player. I spent most of that show watching him play guitar. They happened to play on the same day that Jerry Lee Lewis passed away. So as part of their encore, they covered Great Balls of Fire, which I thought was pretty fucking cool. I guess they were friends with Jerry Lee Lewis, and he is absolutely someone who's influenced Southern rock. So it was very cool to hear that in concert. They did not fly the Confederate flag during the show, thankfully, but they did hold up an American flag while dedicating Fall of the Peacemakers to the troops, which I thought was just great. That's a better way to show some patriotism during a show, and it got a great response from the crowd. The lead singer that night was Jimmy Elkins. I thought he was okay, but... Ultimately, I hate to say it, but unremarkable. Like, he kept his the brim of his hat down over his eyes. He didn't really move around on stage. The vocals were there, but I would say the stage presence really wasn't. And that's why I found myself watching Bobby Ingram for most of the show. He was more entertaining. So that's another reason why I'm really excited to see the band with their new lead singer, because I know that guy Parker Lee has a lot of energy and has a good stage presence. So I'm hoping they come back to my town soon. Before we get out of here, I'd, I'd also once again like to acknowledge that there's a lot of vitriol and hate online that's directed at Bobby Ingram for keeping this band going. And I think that sucks because this current lineup performs quite well and Bobby might not be in that original lineup, but his history with the band goes back quite a long time. On record, as far as I'm concerned, it goes back to 1981 when he played on Danny Joe Brown's solo record. And again, before that... He knew Danny Joe Brown back in the 70s, and that's why he was the guy Danny Joe Brown wanted for that solo album. So he's as close to, quote, original as anyone who's still alive today. And we haven't talked about him a lot, but keyboardist John Galvin is still in the lineup, and he started with the band back in the early 80s. 
I think this quote from Bobby says it all. In 2018, he said to Coachella Valley Weekly, quote, I feel fortunate to be able to do it for so long and so consistently. I've never faltered or stepped out of the group, so to speak. I've never joined another band. This has been my baby for over three decades, and I'm proud of it. I know what kind of sacrifice it takes to make it happen. It's all worth it to see the joy of the fans, to see their faces light up, and see them jumping up and down and hollering and forgetting their troubles. That's the reward. That's the payoff. And I dig that. He's keeping the band alive, which in turn keeps the music alive. That's a big thing for me. And this podcast and this channel, I want to talk about ways that people keep classic rock alive. In Bobby's case, keep Southern classic rock alive. And I think he's done a a very good job of it. I guess the only critique that I see online that might be worth considering is that Molly Hatchett used to be famous for the, quote, three guitar army. when they would have three guitarists out on stage. They don't do that anymore because Bobby plays everything. He is a super good guitarist, so I guess they don't really need two other players. But I do think there's something to the idea that that's missing now. And maybe fans would like to see that again. So if you're new to Molly Hatchet and you want to know where to start, here are my recommendations. Start with the first two albums. A lot of good tracks on both. And of course, Flirting with Disaster. It is elite tier Southern rock. It's elite tier 70s rock. I just think it's just a great classic rock tune and a great entry point for anyone who wants to get into Southern rock. So Flirting with Disaster, all time great song. Fast forward a couple of years to No Guts, No Glory. That album features Fall of the Peacemakers, which to me is another all-time great song. It was not as successful as Flirting with Disaster, but I think it is almost as good. On some days, I might even think it's better. That one should have been a huge hit. It's unfortunate that it wasn't. Now, being an 80s music fan, I'm also very partial to their album The Deed Is Done from 1984. Satisfied Man, the lead-off single of that album, is my favorite Molly Hatchet song (laughs) and I also like She Does She Does and Stone Your Heart. I know a lot of old school fans don't like this one at all because that's the one that kind of leans into the 80s production style so I guess take it with a grain of salt but that is my jam. Also I gotta give respect to Bobby Ingram and Phil McCormick on Devil's Canyon. Again that's as good as anything in Hatchet's catalog and I think it legitimizes their era of the band. So those are some of my favorites. Here's a clip of Xavier talking to me about his favorites from this band. Take a listen. Boogie No More. That would be number one. I said, if you want to hear good guitar that just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, I play that one. Uh, Flirting With Disaster, the song. Um, what's the one that goes on a walking down? It's the one that starts with a heavy bass on Flirting With Disaster. One Man's Pleasure. That's, That's it. Just that, the, the groove of that one, and it dum, 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 and then they go, I mean, you know, that is that is just so southern. And I love it when the guitars are all going together, so you've got one doing one thing, one doing another, and it's just like lots and lots of layers. And you think, how do you climb over all this? And it just it takes you over. And the thing I love, uh, Blue Gimo says, the boy's going to give it to you one time, and, <laughs> and then another layer comes on. You know, I, I'd say Boogie No More is still the, their best song. I should also mention that I know he's partial to the Jimmy Farrar records. I like those records, too. I just don't know if they're a good entry point for new listeners of the band. 
My final thoughts on Molly Hatchet, uh, let me make this perfectly clear. I think they're one of the all-time great Southern rock bands. I don't think they get enough credit for that, partially because they had kind of middling chart success. The band definitely shot itself in the foot a couple of different times, but there's definitely some great songs in this catalog beyond Flirting with Disaster. So if you like Flirting with Disaster, this is a band that's going to have some other tracks that you're going to enjoy as well. This is also a band that formed a big part of their identity through their album covers, which I think is really cool. I like when bands build parts of their identities beyond just the music. And Molly Hatchet is a great example of that. They're also a great example of how a band can survive and continue on despite some serious lineup turmoil. This lineup has never really been stable, but this band has consistently released albums every couple of years ever since their debut in the late 70s. That's not easy to do, so I think that's really impressive. And finally, I think it's sad that Bobby Ingram gets as much vitriol as he does on social media today. He's keeping the music alive, which ultimately extends the band's legacy as a whole. Younger fans are discovering them, casual fans are being reminded of them, and that's just more people who are going to explore the catalogs and also fall in love with those classic records. If Molly Hatchet was completely off the road, for a lot of people, they would just be lost to time. So I'm glad Bobby is out there with the band. I'm glad he's keeping Molly Hatchet active and still producing music, even today. But with that, I'm going to recommend and cite Swampland.com for doing some fantastic interviews with past members and Bobby Ingram. Thankfully, those interviews are all still up on that website, so you should go check them out. You never know how long websites like these stick around, so you should go take a look. I'd like to give a, another special thank you to Xavier Russell for coming by the show. It was so much fun talking to him about this band and so cool to hear his stories about interviewing them back in the 80s and also visiting with them just recently to hear uh, about their new album. So thanks again to Xavier. It was great speaking with him. Please go check out my conversations with him on our YouTube channel. As far as this show we've got coming up, as I have announced earlier, Chris and I are going to be doing a songwriter series about Jimmy Buffett. I'm going to have a couple of interviews coming up that are going to be Van Halen-centric, and that's all I'll say about that now. But plenty of more fun stuff in the pipeline, so stay tuned. And with that, the intro song of this podcast was written and recorded by Michael Skitch Skitchiano. You can check him out at skitchmusic.com or on Twitter. And to play us out, here is a cut from the 2019 Battleground Live album. This is the live version of Devil's Canyon, which I think is the best track of the Bobby Ingram era of Molly Hatchet. So thank you so much for tuning in. Please check out what we're doing on the YouTube channel and find us on social media. And then get yourself one of those records with that kick-ass Viking artwork and enjoy you some Molly fucking Hatchet. Hell yeah! Happy wouldn't sell our home to make way for the track. Somebody from the big old railroad hammer down a shot in the back. Well, load up your guns, it's time to fight. Just don't matter who's wrong or right. Load up your guns, get a man in your sights. This canyon's gonna burn like hell tonight. Hey, 
thanks for listening. You know, there's no shortage of great content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means quite a lot. If you're so inclined, please give this podcast a five-star rating and a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. And share our links wherever you can. Or mention this show to anyone you know looking for a podcast recommendation. All of this helps us out a great deal, and I appreciate it. You can connect with us on social media, too. We are at Play That Podcast on Facebook, Threads, Blue Sky, and even TikTok. Or we are at Play That Rock and Roll on YouTube and Instagram. Please post a comment and say hello. Finally, Play That Rock and Roll is a proud member of the Pantheon podcast community. So if you're looking for more music podcasts beyond this one, trust me, start with Pantheon. You won't be disappointed. Otherwise, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great music and stories from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.